Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We are joined by our good friend Elizabeth Newman today. It seems very, very timely with all the reports coming out. Uh, first of all, uh, good morning, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Charlie. Just background here, um, Elizabeth was the uh, a former Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention for the Department of Homeland Security and is now a co-director of the Republican Accountability Project. But uh, this is really in your wheelhouse talking about domestic terrorism. And we have this report that just came out yesterday. We've had a bunch of interesting reports, I think. This uh, new unclassified assessment that warns about uh, the racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists and militia violent extremists who present this uh, the domestic threat. Um, and and the report, this is scary stuff. I have to say you've been you've been working on this for years, but I mean you sit here uh, in, uh, in in March of 2021 reading this report that the intelligence community believes that these domestic uh, extremists have been galvanized by recent political and societal events in the United States. And they specifically say that the, the narratives of fraud in the recent election, the emboldening impact of the violent breach of the U.S. Capitol, uh, conditions related to the pandemic, all mean that uh, it's, it's going to spur uh, these domestic violent extremists to try to engage in violence this year. I mean, it's it is, it is, it, we are in an alarming moment. And I guess my, my, my take this morning was we have been focused as a country for years, long time on uh, external threats, uh, Islamic terrorism, the immigrant hordes and the caravans, uh, you know, the Chinese, the Russians and everything. But it turns out the enemy w was, was here and it's getting worse. So Talk to me about this. Why has it taken so long for this country to confront the magnitude of this internal threat? That is a really great question, Charlie. And, you know, having the experience of been, being in government, uh, looking and trying to understand the threat and asking questions of the intelligence community and not really getting good answers, then leaving having more time on my hands to be able to, to read and have conversations with people on the outside and realizing that the, the expertise in this case lies outside of government. Uh, groups like the ADL that do very data-driven studies of hate crimes and uh, understanding the different groups and how they are morphing. Um, groups like uh, Moonshot CVE or the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism that are monitoring how things are happening online and uh, trying different techniques to try to uh, off-ramp or encourage people to a, a healthier uh, dialogue as opposed to um, believing in conspiracies or searching for hate online. Um, you, you start to realize that uh, the expertise outside understood this threat so much better than those of us on the inside. Um, and, and I think there's a very good question to ask why, um, and a lot of it has to do with the way the laws are framed. A lot of it has to do with some chilling effects, uh, some incidents uh, as far back as 12 years ago, uh, where somebody raised the alarm that we were seeing a growing rise of militia targeting law enforcement, um, and uh, just the way that there were a few sentences in a bulletin um, that were probably probably needed to be edited that um, implied uh, you know things that civil libertarians thought was an overreach. Um, but rather than editing the document and reissuing it or just saying, hey, 
you know, we'll, we'll double check that to make sure our review standards are uh, what they should be. Um, they pulled back that bulletin and kind of canceled uh, the, mm. any efforts to look domestically. This is at DHS, by the way. This was yeah. DHS oh. intelligence office. And, and that sends a signal to all of your intelligence analysts like, hey, you don't want to go too far down that path because it <laughs> turns political and you might have your career ruined. Well, let's talk about that political because it, it, it does feel like there was a a, a culture of denial about all of this. I mean, we, we had the report over the weekend of how law enforcement never really thought the Proud Boys was a problem because they, well, a lot of them liked Proud Boys and they thought the Proud Boys were were on the right side. I mean, just this week we have, you know, Senator Ron Johnson saying he wasn't afraid of the people attacking the Capitol because they were people who loved America. These were these were patriots. I mean, there is part of that culture that, 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 that frankly not only did not see many of these domestic groups as a threat, but saw them as just sort of, you know, highly motivated American patriots. Right. Um, and that's part of, that is absolutely a part of why January 6th happened, why law enforcement security forces were not uh, to the level they should have been given the chatter that was happening. Um, it, you know, I think people want to label it um, the way that we remember learning how 9-11 happened as an intelligence failure or a failure to imagine. I think this is much more of a a, a human blind spot. Um, the fact of the matter is most of our law enforcement, um, I, I wouldn't say overwhelming majorities, but the majority are going to have come from or still associate with the right side of the political spectrum. So when they look at a group like the Proud Boys, there there is a sense that like, hey, I we all know somebody in our background that acts like that. Um, somebody from our high school, somebody from our you know college days that uh, you know they're a little over the top. They 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 um, like to get in you know fights. They're they, they're just kind of. Um, not pleasant necessarily always to be around, but you know, they have a big heart. We, we think like they're, they're genuinely most, most of them are good guys. They just kind of maybe have lost their way. And so you, you make these excuses in your head because you think, you know, these people, you think that the, that you have experience and therefore you can make the assessment that they would never hurt anybody. Yeah. You, you, you know, these people, I mean, and a lot of them were former military, they were, they're, they're former cops. And so you look at them and guy, know these guys, I mean, these are the guys I hang out with at the VFW hall in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. They're not like black lives matter protesters or scary people like that. Exactly. And, and there's, I, I don't know if you ever, uh, read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, but he has this uh, fascinating kind of ex- exploration of the default to truth theory, which is this idea that when we communicate with people face to face, we assume they're telling us the truth. Like it doesn't even <clears throat> enter into our head to assume that they're lying to us. Um, and he gives these case studies of um, sadly, you know, sexual abuse like Sandusky. And uh, the gymnastics uh, uh, doctor mm. uh, Nasser, and and kind of explores how it took like overwhelming evidence for the individuals that knew these people to go, oh my gosh, they're 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 guilty or they're sexual predators. Whereas those of us who don't know them look at the evidence and we're like, oh, like this is very alarming behavior. Somebody needs to do something. When we see when we think we know somebody when we have had that communication experience with them, 
it, it actually becomes harder for us to imagine that they're lying to us. And so there, there's a, or, or that there, there's something nefarious there. So there is this um, very human natural behavior that if somebody is, is somebody we know or somebody we think we know, that it is hard for us to imagine that they could be evil. So as, as horrible as Senator Johnson's statements were last weekend, they're actually very, very honest. Yeah, um, no, that's what and, I thought, yeah. If, and if it, it could be a great teachable moment if he had the humility or if the, the Republican Party had the humility to hear from uh, the Black community how those comments hurt them, right? It could be a great <clears throat> moment for us to go, oh, this is what you guys are telling us that that I default to think that my community, people that look like me, that I grew up with, um, I default to assume they're safe. And I my default is that if you don't look like me or because of the color of your skin or you came from a different community, a different political philosophy, um, you were unsafe. That that bias is very real, but it seems to be that they don't seem to, the Republicans, uh, the Tucker Carlson's of the world and the, the Senator Johnson's seem to not get that. And that's, well, we I, I, I actually think that Tucker Carlson does get it. I mean, I, I think he's clear <laughs> in what he's, he's doing. playing but, on it. So speaking of things that have aged well, I'm looking at a piece that you wrote in early January uh, for the Washington Post. Um, where you argued that that leaving Trump in office now after January 6th would just encourage these hardcore right-wing extremists who were part of the mob. And you said that Congress had to impeach Trump to rebuke them. Otherwise, they would feel emboldened. And looking at the report that came out yesterday, that's explicitly what they say, that they believe that January 6th, which most of us think of as this horrible fiasco, um, did in fact embolden them. So, you know, talk, talk about how, you know, the events of January 6th are playing into this radicalism and the rising and the rising threat of domestic terrorism. Sure. And uh, I wrote that piece with Kathleen Ballou, who's an expert in uh, the history of white supremacism in the country, um, violent white supremacist. And um, what she saw uh, which I th- think is think is fascinating. Um, she saw that uh, in the Turner Diaries, you ha- which is a, a mm-hmm. fantasy novel for white supremacists, um, that one of the opening scenes of the uh, civil war that um, unfolds in that book um, happens at the Capitol. They shoot mortar rounds at the Capitol, and it's not a very successful battle in terms of um, they didn't necessarily uh, overthrow the country at that point, but it's the the starting point of the war. And um, from there, they go on in, this, in the book, they go on to commit uh, more mass attacks. And uh, eventually, I think they secure a nuclear bomb and, you know, basically achieve global domination and establish a, you know, white nation state, which is their ultimate goal uh, to preserve the white race. Um, right. So that's that fantasy novel. So f- what she was seeing on January 6th is, oh my gosh, this is like very similar to a scene out of uh, this white supremacist fantasy novel. It's going to be a rallying cry. Um, What I was seeing was, oh my gosh, we have neo-Nazis. We have um, uh, QAnon conspiracy theorists who 
aren't necessarily um, with a strong asterisk. There have been some instances of violence by QAnon, but they aren't necessarily uh, of the same ilk as an Oath Keeper or neo-Nazi. So you have QAnon there, you have MAGA world, um, you have uh, the militias who, by from what we can tell, were probably the most organized on January 6th all intermingling with all of these unaffiliated MAGA types, right? And so all of a sudden you have this in-person networking effect, um, a bonding moment of, of, of this euphoria. For them, it's like uh, the, the experience of, um, you know, t- being the underdog and taking back um, the, the championship mm-hmm. title from your rival, right? Like it's uh, a lot of adrenaline, a lot of euphoria. Uh, in it's storming like pulling down the, the goalposts after a game. Exactly, exactly. Um, and not a lot of um, contrition on the other side. The, the, the arrests, of course, have kind of muted some of their uh, touting of what they did, but they very much view this as um, a, uh, the this was the right thing to do because they believe that the election was stolen and they believe that this is in our history to stand up against illegitimate governments. Um, so so you, you mentioned that the, the, the arrest may have muted this. So it does appear that law enforcement is coming down to crush many of these groups as a result of this. Will this have an effect? I mean, you, you wrote back in January that Congress needed to remove Trump as a rebuke to them. But this is also, and they fail to do that, obviously, but this is also, I mean, must be very, very scary for some of these groups. The arrests that are taking place, uh, which they don't act like they really expected. And if, in fact, they are hammered with long prison terms, well, is is that poss- is, is that having a dampening effect? It would seem like it would be. I mean, it has the effect of making people a little bit smarter. Um, I, I, the, when you look at somebody on a radicalization pathway, it, you know, if you were already fully radicalized and you think the election was stolen um, and you think it was the right thing to storm the Capitol, you're probably not going to be changing your opinion. You just might get smarter about your tactics of how you oppose um, and, and maybe you're not even going to be violent mm-hmm. about it, but you're just going to be smarter. There are people, though, on the bubble, and in fact, a lot more people that are vulnerable to re- being radicalized than are actually radicalized. And so the arrests do have the impact of making kind of a, a drawing a line in the stand for somebody that might mm-hmm. be uh, tempted to being recruited into some of these uh, groups. It, it may help them go, you know what, I'd like... As, as as much as I hate my illegitimate government, I like my family. Yeah. I like my job. I don't want to be arrested. So it might prevent somebody from uh, getting recruited. So I, I have I have I have a question that, and I, I think I've asked you this before, but I'm you know going through the various groups. You know, you you mentioned the neo Nazis and and some of the 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 Turner Diary folks. I mean, there's the Proud Boys, there's the Three Percenters, there are the the Oath Keepers, various different permutations of right wing extremists. Are they all white supremacists? Are they all white nationalists? I say this because, you know, some of the groups like the Proud Boys say, we're not white nationalists. We are Western chauvinists. So um, <laughs> are, are there are there different shades of all of this? I, I know it's kind of shorthand to call them all white supremacists, but there's 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 a, a some variation that's worth understanding. Right. That That is absolutely right. And and the, the experts would tell you, you, you have. Um, you know, in in the center of a concentric circle uh, diagram, um, the the people in the center are going to be your hardcore. They are proud to carry the title or the name of a white supremacist or white nationalist, um, and they uh, 
uh, are dedicated to the cause. And then, you know, as you go out from that center, you're going to have lesser degrees. But but one of the hardest parts about um, understanding, you know, where somebody fits is that a lot of the white supremacist ideology that used to be on the fringe of the Republican Party has become mainstream. Mm-hmm. The Overton window has shifted. Mm-hmm. So significantly. Um, your extreme, what what is now extreme uh, or was extreme is now mainstream means that your average Republican who we might know personally, and sure, we all have unconscious bias, but they weren't overtly racist. um, And they probably think racism is disgusting. And they uh, you know, would push back against uh, something that was in their face overtly racist, right? But at the same time, they're dabbling in uh, policy ideas and championing, you know, conservative talking points like "all lives matter," not realizing the harm it causes, uh, uh, you know, the black community, and um, not being able to have a rational conversation about it because all we do is yell at each other and use talking points. Um, it kind of reinforces and and moves. Sadly, uh, it can move what you know a person well, that ten years ago was what we would call a normal mainstream uh, American closer and closer to, to that uh, white supremacist ideology and they can more easily be recruited. Um, and you, so that's you, the concern. Yeah. And you can see this, and this is you know what, what I think is really striking about some of the things that Tucker Carlson is, is, is doing is, is taking some of those, those, those images, those, that rhetoric and put, putting it in the mainstream. But also it's interesting how you, you take ideas that would have been relatively benign and you just turn them a few degrees. You know, for example, um, you know, for a long time, conservatives have said, hey, you know, the values of Western civilization are great. Western culture is good. All of the traditions of democracy and everything are need, you know, be, be upheld. Uh, you know, the great works of literature and art of Western civilization ought to be celebrated. Um, that's mainstream stuff. It, it, but now watching as it's morphing into the defense of Western culture becomes racialized, mm-hmm. that we in the West must build walls against the infidels who are attacking us. And so Western chauvinism is not about the great books anymore. It's about sort of blood and steel exclusionism. But you can certainly imagine how, um, you know, conservatives who for years have been saying, yeah, I believe in Western, you know, I mean, in the Western canon and Western civilization and all of those things. And suddenly it's been co-opted by uh, white nationalists and racist, and some of them just slipstream in behind it and go, yeah. okay, that's what that's what we've been talking about, which is like, no, reading Shakespeare and Milton does not mean that you're going to be marching with the Proud Boys. You know, <laughs> it's so true, and you know, I think part of the challenge, uh, and you and I talk on, um, you know, to to audiences from the left, like the MSNBC audience in particular, and when you say things like. You know, some of conservatives' grievances are real. Um, it's just that they're not ad- handling them properly. Um, they they uh, get a little angry. They think we're making excuses um, for their bad behavior. But but that's not that's not my goal. And the goal is in order for us to get past this very tribalized, po- polarized um, dial- sets of dialogues that are happening that lead to radicalization we have to start listening to one another. So we, we need the left to understand that sometimes when, you're fr- when your fringe element dominates the conversation, that gets co-opted by the fringe element of the right and vice versa. Um, and so we kind of need the, 
what I still believe is a large majority of our country that are more in the moderate frame of the political spectrum um, to come back to the conversation and uh, and and listen to the to the other side and it yeah, and, and actually doing listen. So, yeah. yeah actually <laughs> listen and in doing so that allows people um, on the right who who aren't radicalized at all but feel very ostracized they feel uh, because they've been told to right like that's what Trump was a master at he was a master at taking um, things that might have been just talked about um, on Alex Jones's uh, Infowars, um, or you know, the, the the Tucker Carlson types um, about why you are being victimized, and he just he he so uh, created that um, reality for half of the country who now believes that they are under attack, and and he didn't. I mean, Trump lied about a lot of things, but he used kernels of truth to to create that grievance. A real leader says, okay, yes, there is this very legitimate grievance that our community has, but here's how we address it. It's not yeah. through fear. It's not through knowledge. hating the other side. Um, and Trump, but Trump did the opposite, right? He he raised money off of the grievance. He uh, he added to the grievance in a way that um, was lying. Uh, and and he just he created uh, basically a community that feeds off of anger and grievance perpetually. And, 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 and it's making it harder to push back because of course, you know, anytime you say, Hey, that, that's, that is racist. Well, no, you're trying to cancel me. You're trying to silence exactly. me. Um, I am, I am a victim. So you have sort of a built in defense just and it sort of, this is, this may, may seem like a, a digression, but I, I am stuck with this memory of something that happened. I was trying to think of the date, but it's more than 20 years ago. Um, and I was, um, when was it? I think it was in the 19, late 1990s. And I remember I was invited to this uh, very strange event at Hillsdale College. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble now. And I knew that it was a strange event because it was closed. It was a closed door event. Um, there were there were no students. There were no faculty. There were cameras there. And it was apparently financed by some right wing cattle owner or something in, in, in Texas. And I remember it was like a two day thing. And there were there were a lot of like normal Republicans there, normal conservatives, you know, people whose names you might recognize. I think somebody that worked for the governor and things like that. And, and then a lot of folks that I didn't know. And in and about the middle of day two. I was really getting uncomfortable because a few of the people there kept talking about the role that militias were going to be playing in restoring um, patriotic democracy or something like that. What? And so by the end of the day, I actually, um, and I knew there were cameras there, and I said, I, I just want to raise my hand here. I really want to make it very clear that I want to disassociate myself from any of this rhetoric about the militias or you know any of this that they think that they play a significant role in the restoration of American constitutional, the American constitutional republic. I'm very, and then around the table, all of the other people suddenly like raised their hands and go, yeah, me too, me too. I guess I agree. I totally agree with what Charlie just said. But if I hadn't spoken up, they wouldn't have spoken up and we would have been on tape. I wonder now whether or not when they have those meetings and they're talking about, you know, the, you know, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, whether there is that pushback at all, because it was there and it was interesting watching kind of the the social dynamic that people were unwilling to basically say, I'm sorry, that is crazy stuff. I am not. I do not want to sit here in the room with you, you know, the crazy lady in the yellow dress who keeps talking about the militias and how the militias, you know, need to, you know, you know, arm up and everything like that. So this has been around for some time. Hey, so I want to talk to you about what's going on and what happened in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, yeah. the shooting of the Asian women and the back and forth over what the 
possible motivation, whether it's sex addiction or whether it's uh, anti-Asian uh, bias, it's early days. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. Um, a lot of strange stuff about the sheriff in the case who has apparently got a background of putting out racist memes himself. But um, let me just play a soundbite of the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who is talking about the 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 atmosphere of anti-Asian rhetoric and the fact that that we are seeing an uptick again, once again, in terms of the radicalization and extremism, an uptick of the anti-Asian rhetoric and anti-Asian violence. This is Jen Psaki from yesterday. Are increasing in this country. Why does he think that's happening? Well, uh, he he wanted to be very clear because there's an ongoing FBI investigation, right? And he didn't want to attribute motive. There are law enforcement authorities who do that. Um, and it's important to note when uh, when the uh, when the investigation is concluded or not. So that was a, a bar he was attempt working to respect there. Um, you know, I, I think there's no question that uh, some of the damaging rhetoric uh, that we saw uh, during the prior administration, uh, blaming, uh, you know, calling COVID, uh, you know, the Wuhan virus or other things, um, led to, um, you know, um, perceptions of the Asian American community that are inaccurate, unfair, uh, have uh, raised, um, you know, threatening, uh, have, has elevated threats against uh, Asian Americans. And we're seeing that around the country. That's why even before the events of horrific events of last night, he felt it was important to raise this issue, elevate it during his first primetime address, why he signed the executive order uh, earlier in his presidency. And he will continue to look for ways to elevate and talk about this issue moving forward. So what is your take about this, Elizabeth Newman, um, about the this this climate of of anti-Asian rhetoric and violence? Statistically, there's no doubt that there has been an increase. Um, people were the the academics that study this type of thing. They were seeing this as early as last spring. Um, there's also a long history in our country of targeting Asians at various times. Um, probably the the one that we're all most familiar with is the the World War II um, uh, Japanese internment. Mm -hmm. Um, but but there have been other periods in our history where Asians have uh, borne the brunt of uh, whatever uh, projecting that that the ill that we were dealing with as a country ha was their fault. Um, so this is one. It's important to understand the historical context, not new for the Asian community. Two has been happening um, in increasing numbers. Uh, there was a study out a, a week or two ago that um, the increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans was up 150% uh, this last year. Um, three, the other thing that um, I, I think what uh, Jen Saki said was um, spot on, but I just want to point out it's not it's not just a political opinion. There is data and research that shows that when the president has spoken out against a particular minority group, whether it was uh, the, the anti-Muslim rhetoric that he used during the 2016 campaign, um, uh, as well as um, <laughs> during his presidency, um, whether it's anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, they researchers have been able to show an increase in hate crimes in the days after a tweet or a campaign rally, really? and they they are able to like uh, you know account for normal um, 
elements of hate crime and, and be able to show that there actually was an increase with a, a, a nexus to or a relationship to his words. So the idea that he, during the campaign um, to deflect from his re, you know, poor COVID response, would call it the Wuhan virus or the Kung flu and others in the conservative uh, infotainment echo chamber picked up on that, there is no doubt a relationship here. So I, I, I think that it's um, another you know, moment for elected officials to remember that even even if they have that First Amendment privilege um, and and know in most courts they would not necessarily be held accountable for their you know tweet causing a hate crime um, although I think January 6 is a different question of incitement um, they still have a moral responsibility to be careful with their words and, and of course Donald Trump flouted that. Um, particular to what's happening in Atlanta, you're you're right. It's it's rather complex, um, and investigations take time. It, the FBI is going to be digging into everything from their uh, the the perpetrators' um, internet searches, uh, relationships with individuals, to understand if there's a pattern uh, of uh, any sort of you know undergird or under lying um, bias that that would then allow you to charge a hate crime. Um, well, you, know, you, you, you individual. I, I wanted to ask you about something, a, a phrase that you used, um, because, you know, investigators are looking at whether or not this uh, shooter was motivated by, you know, just hating women or he was an incel or well, I don't know, whatever mm-hmm. it was, I mean, sex addiction. And you said um, the mixing of ideologies has become more prominent in extremists in recent years. It's also called the salad bar ideology selection. Yes. What is that? So you're basically saying it's not either or it's not that he hated women or he hated Asians. It's more c- complicated it's part of the salad bar of hatred it's it's part of the internet phenomenon right um and QAnon is maybe where you see this the most um uh directly people love to build their own conspiracy theory and QAnon invites you into the game of building your own conspiracy theory um what we were noticing as far back as uh i want to say 2017 2018 it was this trend of people starting maybe they start as a white supremacist but then they add in other things to their ideology we were also seeing a trend of ideology hopping so um there was a case that a us attorney ta- talked to us about where the they were charged charged an in- individual for plotting a terrorist attack but he initially joined a white supremacist group and then he got frustrated with them because they were not violent enough. So he left them and went to um, basically a group associated with ISIS, um, which Jeez. you would think the two would conflict with each other. You ideologically. Would, yes. Right. But it didn't matter. This guy just was bent on violence, which is is kind of one of the things that we don't talk about enough in the country. We, we love to we love categories. We love to try to make sense of what is senseless when it comes to you know people being killed. Um, and so categories and, and saying you're driven by a white supremacist hate that, that helps us make sense of the world. But the reality is that underlying all of these ideologies are usually a common set of uh, risk factors and psychological issues, grievances, um, ultimately like a, a lack of, of uh, significance or an ex- deep experience of um, deep humiliation are often the drivers behind why somebody looks for that ideology to give them meaning and to uh, you know deal with the anger that they have from those traumas that they've experienced. So you start with the angry nihilism, and then you just sort of you know plug into the various ideologies that let you play out whatever psychopathology is going on there. 
Exactly. Uh, and, and it's complex, but that, that's a, a good no, layman's way it's, of no, it's, it. That's a great way of, uh, of thinking about it. Okay, so the other big report that came out this week, uh, leaving aside the domestic terror, but I do find them kind of related in, in my mind, was the re- report about the Russian interference in the election, uh, the fact that it was uh, Russia or Iran was a minor player. Uh, China did not apparently do it. Uh, it did not affect the actual counting of votes. So um, that was debunked. The Venezuelans did not rig the voting machines. But I thought the most extraordinary thing about the, uh, the the intelligence community report about Russian interference is not the fact that the Russians were trying to influence the election. It's how much help they had from Americans, going back to this the enemy within type thing. Mm-hmm. The, the, the willing dupes and accomplices who were used, the network of folks who were willing to pass on and amplify these stories. And in a, in a lot of ways, Vladimir Putin didn't need to do much. He needed to push it out there. And then he had he had media outlets. He had Rudy Giuliani. He had members of the United States Senate. He had uh, members of Congress who were willing to push this stuff out. And the willingness of Americans to be part of the Russian disinformation campaign is, is kind of breathtaking. I mean, I, I, I don't think we've fully internalized the implications of, of the way this 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 disinformation campaign 2020 was so much worse than 2016 because it was our own people doing it. It right. was coming and from it, the White House. That's exactly right. I remember um, last summer talking to Chris Krebs. Uh, you know, how are you guys doing? You know, the team's hanging in there because you know the, he he ran the team that was responsible for securing the election. And um, yeah, we're not seeing um, you know some of the stuff that we saw in 2016. So that's good. But on the disinformation front, uh, it's a very different environment because the, in the 2016, we were seeing the disinformation coming from overseas and then using uh, basically plants um, from, from Russia to, to spread and amplify. So they were kind of a part of the whole cycle of disinformation. Now we're seeing the disinformation start from U.S. persons. Um, and Russia helps with the amplification of it. Um, so it was kind of a, an inverse. And of course, the the biggest proponent of that disinformation was Donald Trump himself. Um, yeah. He laid that groundwork early on that if if he lost, uh, the election was clearly fraudulent or you can't trust um, uh, mail-in ballots, even in a pandemic. Um, it's just uh, right, right with fraud. And the whole focus on the Hunter Biden laptop as that was playing out, I, I, you know, I felt like I needed to be careful. I'm not in the government anymore. I don't have access to Intel information, but it just was so patently obvious out of the, the KGB's playbook that like how anybody on the right was taking this seriously was just mind boggling to me. And, and now we actually have the, the evidence to show that Sure enough, they they were actively probably. Agents. I mean, more more than I, I'm I'm actually surprised that we um, are able to to draw some of the direct connections that are laid out in the report. Um, but it is very apparent uh, how engaged the Kremlin was with the Trump team. I, to me, this is like justification if they haven't done it already for the Justice Department to go back to the Mueller report and and do the things they couldn't do when. Trump was president, right? They couldn't bring indictments because he was sitting president. Mm-hmm. president. Um, there, there might be more here. Maybe, maybe they're already working on it. So uh, on, on the Nicole Wallace show the, the other day, um, uh, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, 
kind of laid this out and I was I was actually listening to this when I was walking my dog uh, on, on Sirius XM, where he's talking about how a known Russian asset sent information to, of all people, Devin Nunes um, on, the, on the intelligence committee. This, this is what Sean Patrick Maloney uh, told Nicole Wallace. Play that, that soundbite. And, and those of us on the intelligence committee, you know, wrote into law that the agencies had to issue this report and declassify it. Because now everyone can see what I was getting excited about. And the fact is, is that they were so comfortable using people like Devin Nunes that Andre Durkash, a known Russian asset, sent information to Devin Nunes at the intelligence committee. We literally had the package receipt. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, it is. It is an oh, my God. Are the the other one I wanted the the other aspect that I think is just so bizarre is the is the bogus China card. Uh, yes. You know, and, and, and so so Trump and his inner circle over you know repeatedly you know lied about the nature of these foreign attacks. You know, the top aides um, claimed that it was China who was the threat. That China was intervening to help Joe Biden, and that China was the worst offender. So you got that from, and of course now we're the. This Office of uh, Director of National Intelligence report this week said China did not attempt to influence the presidential election outcome. So you go back and you go, OK, so the White House National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, said that China was, uh, you know, was actively trying to make uh, Trump lose. Uh, you got that from uh, Ratcliffe, who was a uh, uh, director of national intelligence and Attorney General William Barr. Let me play this soundbite. Attorney General William Barr, and again, we now know that the intelligence community says, yeah, China did not, played no role in the election, you know, may have the capacity to do it, but did not do anything. So then how do you explain this appearance by the Attorney General of the United States on CNN back in September? Let's play that. Of those three countries that the intelligence community has pointed to, Russia, China, and Iran, which is the most assertive, the most aggressive in this area? I believe it's China. Which one? China. China more than Russia right now? Yes. Why do you say that? Because I've seen the intelligence. That's what I've concluded. What are they trying to do? Well, I'm not going to discuss that. To this but time. they're trying to help who, who win? I'm not going to get into that. More aggressive than Russia? Yes. Because the U.S. intelligence community... You're trying to influence the United States? Yes. Mm. Elizabeth Newman. Bill Barr <laughs> just flat out lying. I mean, is there any other interpretation? Ratcliffe, O'Brien, Barr... I mean, this was no. just what? What was going on? You want, you want to talk about disin, part of a disinformation campaign coming right out of the administration. Right. And, you know, it's one thing for the president to say it, like who never read his intel briefs or never paid attention during his daily briefs. Um, it's a whole other thing for uh, O'Brien and um, Barr and, and uh, Pompeo. Like they, those guys yeah. actually took their briefings. So they knew. Um, it, it's kind of... I, I, it's it's really mind boggling. I, I I think they would probably spin it to say, well, China's our number one, um, you know, competitive adversary, and so that's why you know we're worried about the long term game of China. Okay, fine, you can you can have that, but that's not what the question was. <laughs> the question was who was interfering with our election, and it, it, the simple here's the simple thing to ask. Um, who, why? Why does Russia do what it does? Why did Iran do what it did? Why would China do what it does? And that the answers behind each of those have been made publicly available for well over several years. Um, but, but even in this last election cycle, 
you had the former DNI, um, uh, the one that was fired um, back in February of 2020 because he testified before Congress and told the truth. And I'm blanking on his name right now. McGuire, McGuire. Mm -hmm. He was like the acting DNI and he got fired because he told the truth. But what he was explaining is, look, the Russian interest here is is not necessarily because they want Trump as much as it is. They want discord in the United States. And Trump is good for that. Trump is, uh, he helps them um, with their goal of making the United States so weak, societally speaking, that we don't have the the strength of will to stand up to Russia when they try to do other things overseas. What is Iran's desire? Iran uh, is is under you know tremendous crippling sanctions. Um, they want uh, to get back to uh, at least you know some sense of financial stability. So it makes sense that they uh, they probably were anti-Trump. In uh, their in their efforts, um, and also kind of want to, they have like a, a psychological need to show that they um, uh, they are a force to be yeah. reckoned with. Um, China, China is and has been the long game player. For them, it is it is not if they could care less who the president is. They want uh, to they want their domination, but they're they're willing to wait for it. They're very patient. What they were looking for, and, and to the extent that they did things um, in 2020, it was to understand, it's like traditional espionage. What is the intent? If Biden wins, what is their intent? If Trump wins, what is their intent uh, the next four years? So they're trying to gather information uh, for all of the potential uh, things that might happen in terms of um, the outcome of the election so that they could be prepared. Um, and, and that's classic of uh, espionage as well as diplomacy is trying to understand your adversary's intentions. So like it was somewhat obvious to any, to, to those of us that, that um, have, you know, been watching the, the game of, of, of these foreign, you know, competitors and adversaries. Uh, so it was kind of mind boggling, even in the moment to see them try to claim that China was interfering. But I'm so thankful that we have these unclassified assessments now, because you can point to the data, you can point to the facts. And here's, I realized that the, the Trump supporters are going to call this the deep state. I totally mm -hmm. get it. Sure. But the reality is that the men and women that go through the analytic judgments, I mean, it is a very rigorous process. When they assess things with high confidence, that is a hugely high bar. You don't get that very often in the analytic community. Um, I'm not saying they're without you know, human error. Of course they are. But I do think that this is an, a product of integrity. It was not influenced by political appointees. Um, it's telling us the truth. Let's let's just switch gears um, from the few minutes we have left, um, because you work at the Department of Homeland Security, and obviously we have this major issue at the border right now. Um, the president uh, is is facing this uh, the largest surge of immigrants in twenty years. Um, the big debate about whether or not it is a crisis. He has reversed many of the policies from the Trump administration, and therefore he's being blamed for the fact that people are, you know, rushing to the border, maybe to take advantage of the fact that, uh, you know, it's not a policy based on cruelty. So give me your take on this. Um, what's happening at the border and, and what the Biden administration needs to do now to deal with, and I'm going to call it a crisis, the, the crisis that, uh, that we face? 
Yeah. So there is a surge. I I think it's important to put the surge into context. One, we always have seasonal surges. Um, March, April, May, we usually see the highest number of apprehensions. That has been the case for the last decade. Um, the, the, uh, border patrol assumed, um, as, as soon as we were moving into pandemic, uh, territory, um, this is like February of last year, uh, they immediately stood up working groups because they assumed that the pandemic would have significant economic impact. They were correct in that, right? We've seen the economy, um, suffer everywhere in the globe. Um, anytime you have economic crisis and, uh, you know, our southern hem- uh, southern partners, they um, we do tend to see increases in people trying to come to the United States for economic purposes. Um, and that's actually a big part of what we're seeing. Um, the preponderance of apprehensions are adult males, um, Mexican, which is different than what we were seeing, say, five years ago. We were seeing more Central Americans. Um, uh, seeing uh, Mexican males uh, try try to come across to get jobs. Um, that's that's the driving factor. The border itself is closed. Um, they're using a public health authority called Title 42 uh, to um, prevent really anybody from uh, making asylum claims or um, it, basically if you're caught crossing the border, you're returned. The only uh, the only category where they have lifted that restriction is for unaccompanied children. And that's where you're seeing all of the news, but it's kind of conflating things like, yes, there's an increase in apprehensions, but we're catching them and we're turning them back over to Mexico. We're not holding them because of uh, Title 42 and, and, and some other ways mm-hmm. that the laws are constructed. It allows us to return people to Mexico if they've come from Mexico. But the, um, the children, um, that that's kind of more of a, a humanitarian challenge, right? Like these are... Uh, yes, there are some older children, but there are younger children showing up and, and you don't, it doesn't seem right to turn them just over to the other side of the border where they are and you know, potentially in harm's way. Um, we have young girls. Um, every, I know from my time at DHS, uh, the, the, the dangerous journey that, that uh, you know, cartels use, they, I mean, the parents pay $10,000 to get their kids smuggled up. And in the process, these kids are subjected to a lot of potential violence, uh, rape and abuse. We have to give pregnancy tests to any girls um, nine or older um, when they come across the border. And, and sadly, many of them, you know, have been abused on their journey up. It's it's really, it's really, really a horrible, horrible journey. And we need to figure out a way to stop the cartels. Um, this is a huge business for them. Um, and I think you're hearing on the right this argument that, hey, Biden, you're making it worse because you have not sent strong enough signals that the border is not open and you're mm-hmm. allowing children to come across so people are starting to send their children again. Um, the, the reality is it's it it's more it's so much more complicated than that. And um, we have tried for 15 years to start doing some of the immigration reforms that are necessary to address both the push and the pull factors. Um, the the re- sad reality is the way our U.S. law is c- crafted, uh, there is a benefit uh, to bringing a child with you when you come to our country. Um, you The law treats you more uh, graciously. You, you're more likely to basically get in, get an ankle bracelet, and be let free into the United States. And because there's a massive backlog in asylum claims, like when I say massive, it's like a million 
um, backlogged wow. asylum claims, and it take it can take up to seven years to hear your claim. That's that's a significant pull factor, right? Like if you know that I can pay eight thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, get smuggled across the border, make an asylum claim, and basically get to live pretty much free in the United States for seven years. And then if that asylum claim ever comes up and it's found out that I actually don't meet the criteria for asylum, I mean, okay, but I, I just got to spend seven years in the United States and I may have been able to figure out enough ways to blend in that I don't even have to show up for the asylum court, right? So there's right, there, that the factor alone, if we could reduce the backlog of asylum, it would reduce one of those significant pull factors. And that's you know, all of this is like, I'm just scratching the surface. There's so many um, complexities no here, but that we really need Congress to, to update the laws so that we can address some of these complex factors. So Greg, Greg Sargent had a really interesting um, insight, I think, uh, in, in, in the Washington Post yesterday. He said there are, the Republicans and Democrats have starkly different visions of what would count as successful managing management of what's happening at the border. Republicans, for Republicans, success constitutes doing whatever it takes to vastly minimize the number of migrants who apply for asylum, even if those measures result in a humanitarian catastrophe. For Democrats, measures that result in such a catastrophe are unacceptable, even if they would reduce migrant flows. So success cannot constitute just reducing migrant flows that way. Instead, success constitutes reforming the system so people can apply for asylum and qualify where appropriate in an orderly way without the border itself turning into a humanitarian crisis, which I think is what you were just describing. Um, that a lot of what I'm hearing from the Republicans seems to be that it's all about the numbers. And as long as you keep them on the other side of the border, whatever happens is going to be acceptable. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of sad because that's not who the party used to be. Um, and, and honestly, that's part of the reason why I, I joined this group that we launched last week, the Council for National Security and Immigration. Uh, I, I, during my time at DHS, um, I was responsible for overseeing our screening and vetting policy, and it, it included um, responsibility for implementing some of the president's executive orders um, related to, to screening and vetting for um, immigration purposes, refugees, that kind of stuff. And, and digging into the details of how we uh, conduct vetting, of how we uh, make sure that, the, that we know who is coming into our country, that they don't have nefarious purposes, how we handle identity management. I really came to the conclusion that a lot of progress has been made in 20 years um, and that the uh, claims that uh, we were in you know, dire straits um, by allowing too many people into our country and we have to uh, slow down immigration flows, uh, especially at the border because of national security, were, were overstated. I, and so I, I feel like it's kind of important, especially for Republicans that have spent four years listening to basically a Stephen Miller version of what immigration should look like, which is a very nationalistic, um, America first, uh, you know, low immigration uh, approach. I, I, I don't think that security is a justification for that. Um, it, you can argue, they can make their arguments for other reasons why they think that that's the right solution. I, but I think that claiming that you need to do it for security purposes is not accurate. Um, so we launched this group 
uh, made up of like former Deputy Secretary Jim Loy, mm. um, uh, some other folks that have worked in the Bush administration um, that have uh, both uh, the homeland security and national security experience uh, saying like, look, immigration reform needs to happen. You have not been able to accomplish it, Congress, like three separate attempts by multiple different administrations over the last 15 years. Uh, the last time the law was updated was 30 years ago. The executive branch has tried and tried like multiple different ways, right, um, through, through their own authorities to get a grip on uh, the, the challenge we have with increasing migration flows. I can tell you looking at the world globally from just a counterterrorism perspective, um, we, we recognize that the, the increase of migration um, is, is not going away. There are a variety of reasons for it, but it's kind of a well-known, un understood fact that we are going to see increased mobilization of people coming from all over the globe to different parts of uh, you know Europe and the United States for the foreseeable future. Mm. We can't just have the solution that we're going to build a taller wall. Um, so we need to address multiple factors here. And, that, and that's why we stood up this uh, council to try to encourage uh, uh, Republicans, uh, to, to encourage the center, really, um, to not let the conversation be dominated by the fringe. We, of course, need border security. We do not want an open border uh, policy. And there are some on the far left that seem to tend towards that. But we also don't need to only use deterrence as uh, our immigration solution. We and just, you know, take take the southern border out of it, we're falling behind economically because we're not attracting the best and the brightest immigrants um, uh, like we used to historically, in large part because our we have a stain on our reputation from the last four years and how uh, we treated immigrants, how we weren't caring uh, for uh, uh, those in need. Um, historically, we, we are a welcoming society and we want to return to those um, values and principles uh, that for me come from my faith, but they're also very consistent with the way that the country has operated of, of welcoming those uh, who in need of refuge and attracting the best and the brightest um, to uh, help, you know, with entrepreneurship and science and technology and, and make sure that we're competitive in, in the next generation. Elizabeth Newman, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. We covered an awful lot of ground today. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. It's always fun to chat with you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.